Brothers and sisters, it is a delight to worship the Lord with you this evening. Let me encourage you now, if you're able, to open your copy of the Word of God to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Our scripture reading this evening is in two parts. We're going to first read verses 1 through 13 of Luke chapter 4, and then we're going to flip back to Luke chapter 23, where we'll read verses 32 through 46. And these two sections, although they are have some distance between them in the gospel according to Luke. I hope that we'll see by the end of the evening that they do stand together and feed our souls. So beginning then this evening with Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And let's remember to give attention. This is God's inerrant word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And now please turn with me back to chapter 23 of Luke's Gospel. Where we will pick up partway through the crucifixion narrative. Luke chapter 23, we'll be reading verses 32 through 46. Continuing then in God's Word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. 
It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Let us pray briefly and seek the Lord's illumination. Our God, we are so thankful to you for your word. We thank you that you have written it, that you have inspired it, that you have preserved it down through the ages by your providence, by your singular care. We thank you that you have provided it in translation so that we can hear the word of God in the language of our hearts. And as we have listened with attention, so now we ask our God that we would hear with illumination. We pray that you would be with all of us, be with the one who speaks, be with all of us who listen. May the words of his mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be pleasing unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. I want to start this evening by asking you if you know any famous last words, or if you've ever heard the phrase, famous last words. Have any of you ever heard that? Famous last words. Well, there are some, some very famous last words in history. The last words of Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. Luther's last words are reputed to have been these. He said, we are beggars. This is true. Another set of famous last words, those of Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach said as he was dying, don't cry for me, for I go where the music is born. What are the significance of these sorts of things, these famous last words, these, if you will, these omega statements, the last words of these famous men? Well, they're certainly intentional. They've taken the time to, to think them through. They are, in a sense, significant, representing all that that person stood for. And they are also an invitation. When Luther said, we are beggars, this is true, he was inviting others to join him in that glorious revelation that when we bring nothing in our hands to Christ, he will fill us. When Bach said, I go where the music is born, he was inviting others through faith in Christ to come with him and see and hear the glories of the new creation. Well, we come in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, to the last words of Jesus that are recorded in Luke prior to Easter. Why did Jesus choose these words? Have you ever wondered? I want to put it before you this evening as we unpack this passage that these words are a great key to understanding what is so good about the good news. Why is it such good news that we have in the gospel? These words of Jesus, these last words of Jesus before Easter, show us just how good the gospel is. They give us a pathway to assurance, and they give us a great prayer that we ourselves can appropriate in all the varied circumstances of life. To see this, we're going to unpack this first. We're going to see this last temptation of Christ that he faces as he's being crucified. We're going to see the last perfection of Christ, and then we're going to see how these last words of Jesus can be the last words for you and me. To see what all this means, though, we have to go back to the beginning of Jesus' story. 
It's very important to note that these last words that Jesus speaks here on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, this whole last sequence that Luke records for us in the crucifixion is tied in to that sequence we read from Luke chapter 4. Think about those words that we read in Luke chapter 4. As the devil was tempting Jesus in the wilderness two times, he used a very important conditional phrase. Did you hear it? The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then he takes him to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and what does he say again? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then Luke chapter 4 verse 13 tells us something very significant. It says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. When was that opportune time? It was here in Luke chapter 23. The last temptation of Jesus comes as He's being nailed to the cross. And as those who are gathering around Him to mock Him pick up the same words that the devil used and now use it again. You see this in verses 35 and 37 and 39. Jesus says in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Jesus. And what did they say? They said, He saved others, let Him save Himself, if He is the Christ. There again is that conditional phrase, if you are the Son of God, why do you hang on the cross? It's not just the rulers, the soldiers too, verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And finally, even one of the two thieves hanging on the cross, verse 39, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see, it's the last temptation, but it's the same tactic. Question the identity. Try to get Jesus to ask, is this really what the plan should be? Should the Son of God be hungry? Should the Son of God not have glory? Should the Son of God be crucified? Is this actually God's will? And the answer in the gospel is yes. It was the will of His Father. And do you know that Jesus all the time had the power to escape, but resisted it? In, Mar in Matthew's account of the gospel, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Whenever Jesus is coming to be arrested, one of His disciples pulls a sword and attacks, and Jesus says, Matthew 26, verse 53 through 54, do you not think that I could appeal to my Father? And He would at once send more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus had the power to come down from the cross, but He was called to submit. He was called to trust his Father. And that was the last temptation of Jesus. He had loved and trusted God the Father throughout His life, but now the question was, would He love and trust the Father when it cost Him His life? Friends, why would God the Father require such a radical demonstration of trust? To understand this, we have to go back even a step further, back to the beginning of the Bible's story. The final test of Jesus, the great test, would He trust the Father even when it cost Him His life, was the test that our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed in the garden. 
Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. That was a test of trust. Adam and Eve had had no reason to doubt God. God had given them everything. But would they trust God even when they didn't fully understand the reason why? God told them, don't eat of that tree, you will die. He wanted them to trust Him. Not because they fully understood why that tree was more special than others. He wanted them to trust Him simply for who He is. Would they trust God simply because God is God? Would they trust Him with what you might call naked faith? Did Adam and Eve trust God with that kind of faith? We all know the answer. The answer is no. Adam failed. And in order for the human race, in order for any of God's elect to be saved, in order for all of God's elect to be saved, that catastrophic failure to trust God must be reversed. But how? How? Especially after the fall of man. Especially after the fall of man, if God gave a person good things, they could always be accused of trusting God for selfish reasons. Think about the story of Job. When, when Job is, at the beginning of the book of Job, Satan comes along with some of the angels into the presence of God, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? And what does Satan say to God? You remember, those of you who've read the story? Satan says to God, does Job fear God for no reason? Haven't you put a hedge around him? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The reality is all of us live with mixed motives. We say we trust the Lord, but how is it when we suffer? And so for the human race to truly be restored, for that catastrophic failure to trust God simply for who He is, for that failure to be reversed, there must come one. There must come a man who has everything taken from him and yet still trusts God when he has nothing else left. And so, to truly repeat the test of naked faith, Jesus had to be stripped of literally everything except God Himself. And that's what we see in the text. Look at verse 34. They cast lots to divide His garments. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In that time... When the judgment of God descended upon God's own Son, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost even that sense of His Father's smile. He had nothing left but God Himself. And this then is the question. Will Jesus prevail where Adam failed? Will God the Son, will the God-man the second Adam, as Paul will later call him, will he triumph where the first Adam failed? Will he keep trusting God, not just through life, but when it's going to cost him his life? And verse 46 is the answer to that question. Verse 46 shows us the last perfection of Christ. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Do you realize that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament here? He is quoting from Psalm 31, verse 5, which is a psalm of trust. He is, he is saying, even when he has nothing left, his clothes have been taken, his dignity has been taken, he's been tortured, he's been mocked, he's been tempted, he's even lost that sense of his father's smile when he has nothing left but God, yet he trusts in God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Where Adam failed, Jesus prevailed. Now, what does it mean to say that Jesus trusted God? What does it mean to say that Christ had faith? Now, here we want to be careful. You and I have to trust God for our forgiveness of sins, but Jesus had no sins that needed forgiven. Jesus trusted the Father not for forgiveness, but for resurrection. In other words, think of it like this. Christians believe God's promises. We believe in Jesus for the sake of redemption. We trust God's promises. We trust Jesus so that we will be saved instead of paying for our sins. Jesus trusted the Father for resurrection, that He would be raised after paying for our sins. This is what makes the last words of Jesus here in verse 46 so significant for us and for our lives today. It shows us, these words show us, that the faith of Jesus in His Father never failed. Not even at the darkest moment that any human being has ever faced. Even when He had nothing left but God Himself, He trusted. Where Adam failed, Jesus prevailed. And this shows us something extraordinarily wonderful about the work of Jesus if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you know the message of the gospel, the message is preached every Sunday from this pulpit, we know that Christ was perfect for us in His thoughts, in His words, in His actions. But this verse also shows us that Christ was also perfect for us in His faith, that the Lord Jesus, the God-man, exercised a perfect faith. This is the crowning perfection of our Lord. And when you understand this, it changes everything. How? Because these last words of Jesus can become the last words that we ever need. Jesus lived, died, and rose as a double substitute. All that He did, He did for you and for me. He not only paid for our sins, He obeyed for our righteousness. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. So why? So that in Him, we could become the righteousness of God. Now, we know this, don't we? Most of you have heard this many times. We know that Jesus is a great Savior, and we know that if we just trust in Him, all will be well. As we heard this morning from Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If we are but united to Christ through faith, our eternity is secure. And yet when we think about our faith itself, is it not true that sometimes we feel like our faith is like Swiss cheese, so full of holes? Our faith itself, the very thing that must link us to Jesus, itself is full of holes it's unstable. It's, we struggle. And so you may wonder, what if my faith 
is not strong enough? What if my faith itself is flawed? Am I still united to Jesus? How can I be sure? But when you see in these words, Luke 23, verse 46, when you see that in in these words that the perfect life of Jesus also included a perfect faith, then you have the answer. Yes, my faith is full of holes, but the perfect faith of Jesus covers even this. Think about it. You see this in the Gospels themselves. When, When Jesus was walking on the water and Peter said, Lord, let me come out to you. And Jesus says, come, and Peter starts to walk, but Peter's faith wobbles and he begins to sink. Does Jesus say, well, you should have believed more. Bye-bye. He reaches out and he pulls him. When the apostle Thomas, after the resurrection, heartbroken, says, I will not believe unless I see in his hands the holes. Jesus comes the next Sunday and does he say, well, Thomas, too bad you didn't believe. Out you go. No, he says, look, touch, believe. Why is the gospel such good news? Why, is these, why do these words give us so much assurance? Because in these words, in the perfect faith of Jesus, we see tremendous good news that even the holes in your faith cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, I'm sure that neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, powers, heights, depths, nor anything else in all creation, including the flaws in your faith, brothers and sisters. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the, this is the final key for those of you who may struggle with assurance. The gospel promises you this, that you can say, even the holes in my faith have been paid for by the holes in the hands of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Even the holes in your faith are paid for and covered by the holes in His hands. And these last words of Jesus are not just for those who struggle with assurance. The last words of Jesus can be your last words in any of the hard things that we face. Think about it. What we see here is we see the most perfect man who ever lived, the only perfect man who ever lived, in the darkest circumstance any human being has ever or will ever face. And how does he express his faith in God in the darkest circumstance any human being has or will ever face? He uses these words from Psalm 31. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. If the perfect and only perfect man who ever lived at the darkest moment any human being ever faced uses these words, then brothers and sisters, you and I can use these same words in all the dark circumstances that we face, all the trials, all the doubts, all the troubles. And just as Jesus took the words of Psalm 31 and personalized them, He addressed them to His Father. So you and I can use these same words and address them to Jesus. And so when you are facing a doubt and you don't know what to do, Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. When you are struggling with something that's just coming upon you in life and you don't know what to do, Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's not an instant cure, my friends, but it is the perfect way 
to put everything exactly where it needs to be. To where else, where else will you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? So whether you struggle with spiritual certainty or whether you're struggling with sin or struggling with doubt or struggling with just the, the difficulty of living in a broken world, what should you say? You take the omega statement of Jesus and you make it your omega prayer. Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just like the words of Luther and the words of Bach were not just a statement but an invitation, so these words of Jesus are not just a statement, they are an invitation, not just to Christians, but even to the lost. I mentioned in Sunday school this morning a friend of mine four years ago whom I flew to California to share the gospel with him as he was dying. And when I was explaining to him about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He, he had embraced the facts. I said, but have you ever put your, your heart in the hands of Jesus? And he said, well, not yet. I said, what are you waiting for? You're dying. But when you're ready, I said, I can't make you believe, but when you're ready, you can take these last words of Jesus and use them as your prayer. You can say, Jesus, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And those of you who were here with us this morning, you know, the answer, you know the rest of the story. Four days after I left California, he texted me and he said, I've committed my spirit. I've grabbed the branch. And 23 days later, he passed into the hands of Jesus forever. The last words of Jesus can be our last word, our last words against all that the world, the flesh, and the devil throw against us. It's not just a statement. It's not just a prayer of Jesus, it's an invitation to all of us here this evening. Will you, my friends, make the last words of Jesus your last words tonight? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, your word is so rich. We open it, we seek to unpack it, we, we, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Our Lord Jesus, you are so good. You have done so much for us. Help these words to sink deeply into our hearts. Make them the song of our hearts. Lord Jesus, into your hands we commit our spirits, our families, our destiny. Amen. Friends, as we come to respond in singing before the Lord, let's stand together if we're able, and let's sing as our song of response before the throne of God above.
Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.